February 11th, 2016. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Gordon Shepard, who is associate professor in, and this is Gordon M.G. Shepard, I want to clarify, who's associate professor in physiology at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University. His lab works on circuit connectivity and dynamic signaling in the motor cortex with special emphasis on multi-level understanding of cellular diversity, networks, and behavior. Hello, Hello. And around the room, we've got uh, Alfonso Apicella. Hello. We've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. We've got Todd Troyer. Hello. And me, I'm your host, Salma Karashi. Um, so your work has so many different angles that can be mined for interesting conversation. And um, let's just face it, I want to sit around and hear you guys talk about motor cortex. So, But I do want to start. I thought it would be cool to open with the idea of the canonical motor uh, or the canonical cortical circuit. So can you just say something about this idea generally, how it's evolving, and if it even remains relevant in, in this era of the connectome and information processing, what you, what you sort of think about it. You've written a review recently. I thought maybe you'd want to say uh, something. Yes. Okay, so that's interesting. Uh, well, uh, there are many directions such a conversation could go in, um, and I, I think that... Uh, I'd like to start by pointing out that the terminology, this was also something that came up in the talk, uh, the terminology is one of the things that uh, both helps us and uh, challenges us in this area. And I think the term canonical has been <laughs> uh, been one that um, has, uh, has caused this concept to take on a life of its own to some extent. Um, you know, I think in, in all areas of biology uh, and other areas of science, that there's often a desire to find something that is uh, a, a common principle and uh, that, that has explanatory power. And uh, that's, that's long been the case in the, in the case of the cortex. And uh, I think... You know, quite a while ago, so the reason I chuckle at the outset here is that my father came up with this uh, notion of a basic circuit in, uh, in, in uh, a variety of uh, systems, but especially in the neocortex. And so that, I think that term basic has a little less connotation of dogma uh, than the term uh, canonical. Uh, so canonical you know, sort of is it evokes the the concept of you know canonical law uh, and so forth, from which there can be no deviation really by definition, and I and so that I that means we have to figure out if we're going to use the term canonical, how do we uh, make room for the the clear variations that we see from area to area and species to species and so on, whereas the term basic. Uh, I think gives there's more inherent flexibility or it implies a little more directly that this is a starting point or a framework upon which one can uh, then build variations. Uh, and you know, I think the two terms are used 
more or less the same, but this term canonical is really caught on. And it's used in other systems like uh, you know, canonical uh, signaling cascades in molecular biology and, and so forth. So it's a useful concept, but one that uh, I think is not the exact definition is not always clear. And I, you know, this actually applies to all, here I am like dominating the conversation unintentionally here. Uh, I want to hear what you guys have to say, but I, I want to say one more thing. And that is that uh, the term motor cortex is similarly a usefully uh, flexible, uh, but very ambiguous term. What, what do we really mean by motor cortex? What do we really mean by a canonical circuit? Uh, and I don't have really quick answers to those. It, we can talk for the whole rest of the time about just those two. I'd really questions. much rather talk about what do we mean by motor cortex, but canonical adds an extra connotation, which is it is usually used when I'm about to destroy the idea or throw rocks at the idea. Mm-hmm. Whereas basic circuit is usually used when I'm going to provide some evidence to support the idea. So uh, I think that whenever we hear somebody say canonical circuit, we get ready to see the guns come out. And, uh, and in fact, canonical kind of means um, straw man that, that nobody has really believed in years. And mm-hmm. I am now going to, to try to act like I'm the first person to prove that it's wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But don't I think that some of it was also uh, to, in a more positive way to say, well, I'm studying one little piece of cortex, but it really applies. The whole cortex is the same. And this is the canonical circuit, so it applies to everything. So if I understand this little piece, we can understand everything. And so now it becomes kind of a, you can use it either way. You can become a straw man. Uh, it's a way to like take the exceptions. You can either emphasize the exceptions or you can discount them. And you have this thing. It's ironic, though, that your father's book is where both terms uh, really got their strength. I'm not sure because, about canonical. Yeah, in the really? uh, Douglas and okay. Martin chapter ah, yes. of Cortex is where the term canonical circuit got They're the ones who championed that term, right. absolutely. There's an interesting parallel in molecular biology, actually, because Francis Crick introduced the term, the, uh, the dogma of uh, DNA to RNA to protein, and I... You call it central dogma. The central That's dogma. The dogma of all. And I... There's a, a, a description of this on Wikipedia, actually, where uh, it turns out that he misunderstood the meaning of the term dogma. Uh, and in his view, because uh, he was very anti-religious, he, uh, he knew that the term came from religion, uh, and he thought, therefore, that it had no value as signifying something unchangeable. And so he would uh, <laughs> then uh, use this term uh, in, in that sort of sense of, of not necessarily being a binding in his own particular uh, uh, definition of this term. And that, too, apparently uh, he got a lot of flack for uh, using. <laughs> How about and, motor cortex? What is it that makes the motor cortex the motor cortex? Uh, can I turn the question around and ask you? Uh, <laughs> you know, I think traditionally it's been the place where you can find low thresholds for evoking movements, and it's a place where lesions certainly in humans, give you paralysis uh, on the contralateral side. Uh, and uh, but uh, So there's this uh, concept of a, uh, an aerial localization of motor cortex. Uh, Irving Diamond had the uh, orthogonal view that you could think of 
layer 5B as being motor cortex in its entirety across all of neocortex because that's where the uh, PT-type cells are that project directly to uh, typically motor centers, wherever they may be found, if it's visual cortex or uh, other sensory cortices or motor cortex, those projections go to motor-related areas in in the brainstem and spinal cord. So I think maybe the real answer lies somewhere in between. But again, it's a it's a flexible term, and I think we need to try to be clear about what we mean when we use the terms. Uh, and uh, yeah, what do you think? Well, I can. I think there are maybe I don't know exactly how many four or five pieces of evidence that have been used that motor cortex is the motor cortex. One of them was the original Fritz and Hitzig stuff that you mentioned with the microstimulation, and that's the low threshold place for producing movements of single muscles as opposed to complex movements. One of them was uh, Ed Fett's work on spike-triggered averaging around movement, and there were neurons in the motor cortex, in the traditionally defined motor cortex, that uh, would show... Um, spike-triggered averaging in movement, which is pretty remarkable, meaning that that one neuron was so strongly correlated with the movement that would show up. And uh, uh, let's see if I can think of a couple of other reasons. Direct projections to motor neurons from there, uh, at least in some species, and maybe not in all of them. And um, uh, let's see, the motor strip was called the motor strip in those old strictonization experiments because they could put a little strychnine on the motor cortex and get movements from that. Mm, mm, the Jacksonian march. Yeah. That's going back. Yeah. And then uh, Peter Strick's nice work showing that there's a special region in monkeys, uh, and this undoubtedly extends uh, to humans, and Pierre Roland has some uh, evidence in this direction as well, that there's uh, been a evolutionarily relatively new addition to the most caudal part of what we normally call primary motor cortex that contains these so-called corticomotor neuronal cells that have the direct connections to lower motor neurons. Uh, so, so the motor neurons that do that are sometimes called upper motor neurons, which is a very provocative name. It is, and I think there too, I, I can, it has several connotations one is uh, that these neurons have a very direct role uh, in determining the activities of the lower motor neurons. And I think that's one of the things to emerge in uh, over time is that there really is this very flexible association or relationship between motor cortex activity and, uh, and muscle activity uh, that, uh, as I mentioned in the talk, Mark Shiver has captured in this our title of his uh, symposium review, uh, and that has been a, a, an interesting area of investigation, especially recently with the uh, brain-machine interface applications, where you can have high levels of activity in the motor cortex and a flat EMG. Uh, so clearly there, is, there are cellular mechanisms that uh, somewhere in circuit-level mechanisms that uh, enable this dissociation. Of uh, and you know maybe this is a a reflection of the fact that we're we're constantly doing motor imagery uh, and thinking through our actions before actually doing them. So uh, it, it's uh, clearly got some ethological 
advantages to be setting up that way. So for most of those pieces of evidence that suggest the motor cortex is the motor cortex, they're all about layer 5B. Basically, the neurons that are spike-triggered average, the neurons you're stimulating when you stimulate with microstimulation, all of that stuff. So is there any evidence at all that layer 2, 3 of motor cortex is motor cortex, or is Motor, or is that doing something completely different? Right. Those neurons are presynaptic to the corticospinal neurons. So maybe we should think of those as being premotor cortex uh, in layer 2-3. Uh, you know, I think we're at an interesting point where there's a lot of uh, research that has been done and is still being done on the primate motor cortex, which is this enormous area con- compared to the uh, the mouse, where even the entirety of cortex isn't as big as primate motor cortex, uh, and I, uh, but a lot of uh, important studies are now being done in, on mouse motor areas, and I think the immediate challenge is for these groups to uh, have more uh, dialogue with each other to see if we can really start to uh, look at what is common and what is different. We don't have to find common principles, but it would be nice to uh, get get uh, a better sense of what is what are shared mechanisms and what are uh, different mechanisms. So in the mouse, we have ways of looking at layer 2, 3 neurons in motor cortex with genetically encoded calcium indicators and so on. Uh, in the primate, the studies have mainly been of uh, uh, either antidromically identified uh, PT neurons or just unidentified cells in in motor areas. Uh, And if we can start to triangulate in and get a better sense of the different contributions of different cell types in different areas, uh, in different species, that would be very helpful, I think. Can you give us a ballpark figure for how many cell types there are that we have to think about? Uh, Well, I... You know, I think the, the minimal number would be three. So the IT... PT and CT, uh, standing for intratelencephalic and uh, pyramidal tract and corticothalamic types of neurons, uh, would be sort of the the minimal set of uh, essentially entirely distinct populations of neurons, as defined uh, on the one hand by their anatomical characteristics and uh, in particular their axonal projections, which, uh, in the case of intratelencephalic, as you've shown, uh, Charlie, in your uh, earlier work, uh, cross the corpus callosum and uh, branch in both cortex and striatum. Uh, the PTs send uh, ipsilateral branches down uh, on the way to uh, and going past the uh, striatum and thalamus uh, on their way to brainstem and uh, spinal cord centers. And then the CT neurons being the specialists that uh, send branches directly to thalamus. Very little, almost nothing in the way of cortical-cortical branches. Uh, And, uh, of course, within those classes, and especially the IT uh, class of projection neurons, there are many subtypes uh, and many still waiting to be discovered, I'm sure. Uh, and uh, but that would be a starting point for a sort of minimal uh, grouping of major cell types for the excitatory neurons. Yeah, this is my question. You are discussing about the excitatory, but what about the inhibitory circuits that is going to shape the output of this neuron and maybe control the motor cortex and the motor action? 
yeah, I think there's no question that the inhibitory neurons are there for an important purpose uh, in ways that are really that still need to be understood in the motor cortex. Uh, I, I'm not aware of studies looking at that yet in the mouse, but in the primate, Shinoi uh, 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 and colleagues have looked at uh, the uh, uh, they've, they've classified neurons based on firing characteristics and looked at the possibility of whether inhibitory neurons might be gating the output of, a, so in other words, a suppression of activity in inhibitory interneurons might open up a window where excitatory neurons could then deliver the uh, output of motor cortex uh, involved uh, in, in generating motor responses, and that doesn't seem to be the case. There's a, a, a couple of studies from Shenhui's group addressing this. Then the next question is the PT, IT, and CT. They're going to share the same pool of interneurons, and they're going to have their own interneuron machine. Uh, well, uh, so a slightly loaded question because you're the one who has answered this <laughs> uh, best, as far as I know. Uh, and so that's... That looks like it's a little bit intricate, actually, because the uh, in in layer five B, the pyramidal tract and the intratelencephalic type cells do seem to share a common pool of interneurons. They can disynaptically inhibit each other, uh, whereas in the case of IT, sorry, uh, yes, IT and no, I, let me take this back. In the case of uh, PT and CT neurons that are very close to each other at the border of, uh, of layer 5B and 6, we found examples where one cell will get very strong uh, excitation uh, and correspondingly strong inhibition, and the neighboring cell of a different type gets absolutely no input of either type. And so uh, to some extent, these circuits are common across uh, pyramidal cell types, and in some cases they aren't. And there, there really seems to be a fair amount of detail here uh, that needs to be worked out more extensively. Then you're saying that we cannot write the basic circuits yet, correct? As was writing in your father book, maybe we are adding element all the time. And what do you think right now is going to be a technique or something that we should use to really to understand the entire process. Or a better way to classify. I mean, it seems like the classification, the, the terms you use to classify, I mean, is, is, are molecular markers going to be important in some of this? Like, well, I, I uh, didn't mention that, but the anatomical, uh, the anatomically defined projection classes, ITPT and CT, correspond uh, extremely well with genetically defined classes, and a number of molecular biology labs have made enormous progress in identifying the cell fate specification mechanisms underlying uh, the generation of the major types of cortical pyramidal neurons, and uh, they too arrive at the same basic cell type. So I think there's pretty good consensus, actually, that ITPT and CT or whatever names they may uh, go by, are the fundamental uh, superclasses, in a sense, uh, and that uh, there are clearly many additional cell types, but they tend to be variations within these broad themes. Uh, 
defined uh, at this at this more basic level uh, in terms of their axonal projections and their sulfate specification mechanism. So there's good alignment of the molecular biology and the anatomy, and there are uh, physiological properties that go along with uh, with these classes as well that are pretty well conserved, but I think it there's likely to be more variability there uh, than uh, at the anatomical or uh, molecular biological levels. One of the examples is Kawaguchi, correct? That he classified the cortical striatal cell in three different types, correct? The fast adapting, the slow adapting, and there was another population that I don't remember right now. That's a great example, yeah. Do you think, think that those ones are going to affect the PT type in a different manner? Or each of them is going to talk on one of the PT subtype? I think in general, physiology, physiological properties are an excellent substrate for plasticity because you can change the physiological properties by changing the mix of ion channels. Uh, whereas it's... Uh, uh, it's going to be a lot harder for a cell to reconfigure its large-scale axonal arbor, uh, certainly from an IT type to a PT type, uh, uh, not to exclude the possibility of anatomical pla uh, structural plasticity as well. I'm sure that uh, does play a role in many forms of plasticity, but physiology is uh, certainly a, a, a substrate for that kind of plasticity as well. Uh, so I think it's not surprising that there are a lot of differences in, that you can find in the physiological properties. Some of them will be more uh, consistent than others. Uh, that's an important set of details to uh, figure out. Another question that I have for you, it's being always taught and believed that PTIT are part of the go-no-go -no -go pathway. What do you think about that? Is it still true? Well, I should ask Charlie what he thinks about that, actually. I think the go-no-go pathway is canonical. <laughs> I knew that. <laughs> but if we're talking what about What do you direct, mean by canonical? <laughs> yes, the right versus By direct versus indirect. So that's an anatomical question. Uh, the, the PT cells go to one or direct versus indirect and IT to the other. And, uh, you know, Gordon is the person who's settled the issue, in, in my opinion. So maybe you would tell us what the, what the answer was in your experiment. Well, these were experiments uh, in Jim Sermeyer's lab. So uh, just to summarize very briefly, I, we looked at uh, how IT and PT uh, innervate the D1 receptor and D2 receptor expressing spiny striatal neurons, uh, projection neurons, uh, and we saw a, a mixing of, in other words, both postsynaptic cell types got inputs from both presynaptic sources, uh, suggesting that there was not a segregation, uh, not a clean segregation, certainly, um, and, uh, and uh, in, in the form of labeled lines, but that there was uh, that there was a lot of more mixing of the information. I will say there's a lot of variability from cell to cell, and I think this is an area for the future in general, is to understand cell to cell variability 
in uh, circuit-level properties. And I think a, a great example of this is the variability uh, from cell to cell in the axonal branching patterns. And Hitoshi Kita uh, showed a slide in uh, the talk of this corticospinal, what I would call a corticospinal neuron, what he would call a corticosubthalamic neuron, with its many branches. And uh, he did, of course, many other re reconstructions. And they all have a slightly different, in some ca cases very different, pattern of branching. And getting on top of that uh, diversity in branching patterns and understanding PT diversity, IT diversity, CT diversity at, at this level, I think is really an important area for the future. And one that now looks like it's actually realistic to hope for. Uh, I also showed a slide uh, from this recent study from the Genelia group showing that uh, single axon arbors can be reconstructed in an automated manner uh, across the entire brain. Uh, and I think this will allow us to do these quantitative comparisons of branching patterns for the first time uh, and understand diversity at this level of single neurons. And I think that's really going to uh, add an entirely new dimension to the study of circuits in, in general. Um, this is at static level, correct? How you picture that to use this kind of knowledge to understand the dynamic of the circuit? I... Well, what do you think? Well, I think that probably, you know, you had, thank you so much to reverse the question. <laughs> I think that we have to use multiple approach. We cannot only use the anatomy, correct? I think you're already doing that, correct? You are trying already to figure out what the PT, IT cell does in vivo, correct? I think probably this is the best way to go as one of the approach. We should use basically what I would like to do, for example, in the future my lab to have a biological phenomenon where I see that these PT, IT cells, they are activated, not in the motor cortex, but then in the auditory cortex, and then to take apart the element of the circuit in the slice and go back and revisit that in in vivo again. I think yeah. this can be an approach that can help us to understand what I like to define the anatomy, that is the static of the system, and the in vivo, where the, the network is dynamic, because it's... Yeah, I think that's the whole point of the basic circuit, right? And you read one of these chapters in the synaptic yes. organization of the, well, brain, the brain, the basic circuit is the very first part of the chapter, and the whole rest of it is full of those other, attempting to answer those other questions. The problem is that we have... We've been living off the anatomical capital of the 1980s. In the 1990s, people just quit trying to learn new anatomical things. And they told themselves, well, the stuff we know is enough. And I guess it was enough for right now. But it isn't. It isn't even the tip of the iceberg for the complexity of all the connections and the specificity of stuff and the number of cell types. For a long time, the, the correct number of cell types for any part of the brain was three. If you're studying cell types, generally you should find three. And, and so people who did Golgi studies, they, they, if you got more than three, I, I did a Golgi study of this triatum in early 1980s, and we ended up with an argument about how many different cell types there were. Uh, one of us, the first, whose first author, Howard Chang, he counted 21 different cell types in this striatum. And uh, the Steve Kitai, who was in charge of the lab at that time, thought the right number of cells was 
three. I mean, that's what everybody finds. That's what Carl would have found was three. And uh, and we settled on nine. <laughs> so, uh, Did you group called, them? Probably it's like thirty, yes. right? Really, if you if you knew everything, right. And I think uh, you know this is one of the both the challenges and the uh, hindrances in our field is that if we're not clear about the terminology, then it can be uh, it can be we can be talking about two different things or two similar things without actually knowing it. And, uh, but I think going back to this issue of static connectivity, uh, there really is a big question of the extent to which the those types of connections that we can estimate either from anatomy or from uh, connectivity studies where we're just measuring the so-called static connectivity, to what extent do those connections uh, translate into in vivo signaling? Uh, and that, I think, is one of the real challenges for the future. And uh, it's, I think it's not going to be enough to just inactivate specific cell types, but you really have to manipulate connections between cell type A and cell type B to get at the function of that particular connection. Uh, and there are now tools, chemogenetic and other tools, that are, are starting to give us access to that level of circuit analysis. But I think eventually uh, that's going to be an important uh, level of investigation. There's a lot of terminology here that is is also dangerous, right? Things like static and type. Uh, both... And both things are pretty dangerous, right? So static anatomy is really not that static. Depends. And okay. I was kind of curious yeah. about how much of the diversity in, say, these the PT cells, these long things, how much that was changed through development. It may be pretty static when you get there in adults, uh, um, but it may have been quite plastic in terms of searching out and, and sorting out into different types and then maybe all activity dependent and stuff like that rather than thinking what is a type of this and that and they do different things and the basic anatomy in, in the cortical anatomy can be set up by early patterns of activity too so that are more or less plastic you know as time goes on and so maybe things settle do settle into nice types that go along with the physiology and stuff like that but they kind of set each other up and they may be kind of fuzzy or not. Or I mean, it's always... Something. cells have colossal connections during development and then lose them at some point. So there's like huge difference between the cells whose axons go to the other side and the ones that don't is something that happens at some point in time. It doesn't start out like that. I don't know what that fact means or how I wouldn't want to over-interpret it, but because in the adult... The cells that project into the brainstem do not project to the other side. And it's not just that they mostly don't. Mm -hmm. They just really don't. And you can now that these really great methods for seeing this kind of stuff are available, you can really just see it. There's just nothing there. So the, the, at some point, that connection got lost, but it was lost in some kind of very deterministic way. My favorite example of how extreme developmental plasticity mechanisms uh, can be in rescuing uh, a, a malformed brain is, uh, are these arachnoid cysts, these developmental uh, abnormalities that can fill up an entire hemisphere. And so uh, you can find case reports of 
children who uh, it can either be this can be an incidental finding or they could have very subtle motor deficits that first bring them to medical attention and they get an MRI scan and an entire hemisphere is basically missing. And so all of that functionality, all those la- normally lateralized cerebral uh, functions have been all pressed into a single hemisphere and the brain can accommodate that. Uh, and so these developmental specification mechanisms include a large capacity for rewiring. And you know, basically the brain is trying to uh, organize itself in the most effective way it can in the service of behavior. Uh, and it can accomplish that, in, uh, including in these incredibly extreme. Good. Do you think you could use that as a way to study, say, in an animal model? Right. So presumably it has to reorganize according to the same principles that set up the, the different things. So suppose you don't have that option to be lateralized. What do you do? Do you make yeah. two functionally lateralized circuits or something like that? Or those things that are lateralized to there? Is there no difference? I mean, is it just because it's on the other half of the brain and, yeah. or something like that? You could, you could do something. Like you have a left and right visual cortex all in the right hemisphere or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it'd be interesting whether it's, maybe it's not separated into different areas, but it's functionally left and right, and the patterns of connectivity are like you would get across the colossum, except they're local, you know, they're local to one area. And right. What are the properties of those things? Are they consistent with? Right. The topography are, is clearly abnormal, and the question is whether the topology in the wiring is preserved in some way. It can't be entirely normal, but it's... But that's, what this, that's why it's super informative, right? Which, which things are easy to break and yeah. which things really are seem to be really... Well, if you organized. take out a hemisphere in an adult, uh, you can see the, uh, the how severe yeah. those effects are, certainly. So. But I was just talking about doing early... You know, yeah. doing early that sounds thing. like a, a research program for, for somebody. That would make it great. Yeah. A grant application. As long as you had a result first. <laughs> so how important is the idea of laminarity? Because, I mean, it seems like, at least, I guess, in the avian brain, you don't, you see all these computationally complex things happening behaviorally, and there isn't really any kind of, I mean, there's organization, obviously, but this, this conserved laminarity that you see throughout mammalian um, cortex is just, something that's ubiquitous and is it an epiphenomenon? I mean, how do you, is that, an, is it an evolutionary? I mean, I don't know. How do you view that? Why so many layers? Yeah. Well, how many yeah, layers are there? Try to it down. <laughs> uh, no, I think layers are uh, something you can see uh, clearly and therefore they're convenient uh, topographical uh, aspects of the, the cortex that is experimentally very useful, but uh, the uh, distributions of the different classes of projection neurons across layers, uh, I think, is uh, uh, salient for the mixing in certain layers, like layer 5B and 6 in particular, of multiple, of two classes uh, of projection neurons. And so I, so I think in a sense, uh, in the normal animal, you've got, uh, you've got every pyramidal neuron having a dual identity of being a certain type of projection neuron and residing at a certain laminar or even sublaminar 
level. Uh, but you can jumble the laminar distributions and the uh, those projection classes are still a fundamental organizing principle. And this has been shown in an interesting little study uh, where uh, this group used the uh, uh, by Terashima uh, et al. Use retrograde labeling to identify ITPT and CT neurons in the realer mouse, where lamination is completely jumbled. Uh, and still there, they got these three fundamental classes uh, of, with uh, no overlap in the labeling patterns, uh, but the neurons were located in uh, you know, completely abnormal laminar distributions compared to the wild type. So it gets back to this contention of mine that I think is shared by a fair number of people that in the case of cortical projection neurons, three is actually a pretty good estimate for the, the basic types, uh, which shouldn't be misinterpreted to suggest that there aren't additional subtypes. And whether we want to even call them types and subtypes, this can, of course, be a contentious issue. But I think uh, at a certain level of organization, these are useful groupings uh, of it all depends on what the question one is after. Uh, you know, within layer two, three, for example, uh, a series of recent studies uh, by Carl Peterson, Fritjof Helmkins, Cruz, and uh, Carl Sabotas, among others, have shown that there are two different uh, types of IT neurons in layer two, three of barrel cortex uh, that project either to uh, S2, secondary somatosensory cortex, or to M1, and that they have different properties and they have different functional properties as well. And so that's not only uh, a subtype of IT, but in layer 2-3, but it's two different types of layer 2-3 neurons. And of course, it's important to make that distinction. Basically, we have three main cells, CT, IT, and PTA, correct? What do you think that then the brain initiative project and the transcriptome is going to help us to understand inside these three uh, type of neurons, even that if we don't want to use type, correct? We are saying that it seems like that if we have three types, CT, PT, and IT, we have understood almost the majority of the pyramidal cell type that can build the basic circuit. What we're going to learn by using the transcriptome and going to after the fine detail of each of them? Uh, well, because at this point is a question, okay, how, when we're going to stop to go after a new IT type or subtype, whatever we want to call it, correct? When we have to stop to have another PT type or so on and on, or how we are going to understand really how the cortex is made of how many types of cells. Well, so I don't think that that's uh, that, that determining the number of cell types in the cortex is in itself necessarily that important a goal because whether the number is 42 or 3 uh, doesn't lead to a deeper understanding necessarily. I think the, the questions have to be uh, or the, the experiments have to be designed about uh, around specific questions. And uh, so I, I can't really answer that. I, you know, I think 
But if you have three and you have 42, the probability of connection between the 42 type is different than three types, correct? Right, but going back to this example of the two uh, anatomically defined types of layer 2, 3 cells in barrel cortex, it would be very interesting to know uh, more about their molecular biology and specification, uh, among other things, so that we could look for the same genetic programs in other areas and species and, and test the possibility that these are uh, a more, they represent a more fundamental division of labor up in layer two, three uh, into different cell types, or whether it's a specialization of, of barrel cortex. There's another thing about that, in essence, whether they're carrying different messages. So if the neuron acts on branches and goes to two places, you know that that, whatever message, we don't know the language of the neurons, but whatever that neuron's saying, it's saying it the same thing to two places. But if there are two different cell types that look almost alike and are, look like they're embedded in the same network, and one goes here and one goes there, there's a possibility anyway that they're saying entirely different things uh, from each other. So I think when we see axons branch and go to the, I mean, you know, with corticostriatal projections, we see two groups of corticostriatal cells. One of them is, is carrying some kind of motor signal to the motor structures, and one of them is doing whatever internal communication the cortex does with itself. And the, those two are different messages. So the idea that they might have gone to different projection neurons is, was a cool idea. That's why it was such an exciting idea. But also, they're almost certainly not uh, just copies of each other. They're probably two different kinds of things. So I think that some of the anatomical axon connectivity stuff is a clue about what is a channel of information, what, what cha how many different channels of information there are, how many different messages could be coming out of this network. And the cells of a type are probably carrying messages that are similar in some way. And so knowing knowing the type, it's not the same as knowing the message, but it's the, it's the basic circuit that leads you toward knowing how many different messages there could be. So these molecularly defined um, pathways, ITPT and, and CT, they have correlates all the way through phylogeny, yeah? Is that true? Good. To the extent it's been looked at. So, I, you know, the Allen brain is just uh, a treasure trove of resources now. So... They have uh, human and uh, mouse and uh, multiple species. What we don't have, and so you can look at uh, laminar uh, labeling patterns for PT-specific markers and IT and CT and so on. Uh, but we still, you know, comparative uh, corticology is really very primitive compared to the kind of comparative analysis uh, people can do uh, for uh, uh, comparative genomics, uh, because uh, so many mammalian genomes have now been uh, fully sequenced. It's, I think the number is well over 50 now. And uh, so that's the entire genome, and, and uh, just immensely powerful for doing comparative studies. Whereas for cortical circuits, you know, we just know the tip of the iceberg, even for, I think, the mouse in, in many cases, or other well-studied species like cat, uh, especially visual areas, uh, and, uh, and monkey in, in multiple areas. But even so, it's, we, we have so little basis for uh, rigorous uh, comparative 
uh, analyses compared to the richness, the relative richness in uh, comparative genomic studies. So it's it's uh, is very limited. Uh, but what there is available now from resources such as the Allen Brain uh, it certainly suggests that there uh, it, it, that there are striking similarities across mammalian species. Uh, so if we general. looked at that, like these uh, uh, IT and PT um, mouse lines that have different colors for the two sets of neurons, and we just looked in three-layer cortex, yeah. what would we see? Uh, we'd have Do to have know? someone who knows a lot more about three-layer ah. cortex. <laughs> I, yeah, would, I'm not sure, but there are... I, 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 yeah, I, it's, that's hard to say. Um, I guess that information is probably out there. We could just look for it. I, you know, I showed one, I, intri- to me, intriguing example in the talk of uh, IT and PT-like neurons in the subiculum. Uh, and subiculum, of course, is not just a single layer, but it's uh, somewhere in between hippocampal and uh, neocortical areas in, in structure. And, uh, and so there are you know, very clearly two different pyramidal cell types that seem to map onto IT and PT in, in a number of their properties. And intriguingly, also have this difference in connectivity with the IT-like type connecting to the PT-like type and not in the reverse direction. Uh, so I think you know, the more we look, the more I, uh, there are indications of this motif out there. Uh, and there are even suggestions that in uh, CA1, uh, there's also a, a differentiation of pyramidal cell uh, types into, into two basic uh, types that resemble IT and PT to some extent, although there the connectivity hasn't been as bad. Uh, so uh, it wouldn't be surprising if there was uh, uh, a lot of uh, conservation across areas and structures uh, and species. And there are cases can be made for IT, PT, and uh, CT, even in, uh, in non-mammalian species uh, as well. Uh, based on uh, in situ hybrid hybridization patterns and things like that. Uh, so, but I think you know still the mammalian neocortex uh, has a lot of very distinct uh, properties, uh, and that ITPT and CT are quite specialized there uh, compared to their potential counterparts in uh, organisms that lack a neocortex. Excellent. Thank you for being with us, Gordon Shepard. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop.